Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the After Ed podcast. Uh, with me today, I have Julia Freeland Fisher. Uh, Julia, thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much, Jason. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so uh, for those of you that don't know, Julia uh, is the author of a new book, Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks, and she is the Director of Education Research at the Clayton Christensen Institute. So I want to come back to your book in a minute, uh, but first I'd like you to talk about disruptive innovation. Uh, what is it and why should folks in education care? Yeah, I love this question, obviously. <laughs> um, so first off, I'll apologize to your listeners. I have an elderly chocolate lab who is sitting at my feet. And so if, you ha if there are any disruptions during this podcast, it's just Mo. Um, but that's a good segue into talking about what we actually mean by disruptive innovation. Because I think for educators, when you hear the word disruptive, it only has connotations of the student in the back of the classroom, making your job harder. Um, and, and really, it means something very specific um, in sort of the innovation literature. And it's an innovation that competes on affordability and access, as opposed to on price and prestige. Um, and what I mean by that is, is sort of the counterintuitive fact of the matter is that disruptions when they start off often don't look particularly state of the art. So Sony's first transistor radio couldn't really hold a candle to RCA's big fancy tabletop radios, but it was cheaper and it was much more accessible and it meant even teenagers could afford a radio, right? And they could leave their house and listen to music at will. Um, Apple's first personal computer was actually first sold as a toy to hobbyists and it didn't look very impressive compared to big, fancy mainframe and mini computers. But over time, these products and services that start off maybe looking a little underwhelming move up market um, and they supplant um, or disrupt the companies that have for decades often produced sort of state-of-the-art technologies and services. And so it's really a theory of competition um, for, for businesses, but it's a theory of access and affordability for consumers. I like that. So that, of course, is kind of at the heart of it. Um, and I guess you could sort of say for a kind of a business application, but yeah. how does disruptive innovation uh, get in my world in education? Absolutely. Well, I think if you look at our education systems and we at the Christensen Institute study both K-12 and, and higher education and sort of adult learning environments, if you look across all of those systems, we are sort of chronically resource constrained. And I argue that access and affordability, even in our publicly funded, funded K-12 systems, remains a challenge. Um, it remains a challenge in a couple different senses. Um, if you look at some of the US civil rights data on access to coursework, not all schools are created equal. Not all students have equal access to, for, for example, advanced coursework or electives. And if you also think about the literature that I'm sure you had to study back in your teacher prep program, mm -hmm. um, if you look at the literature on just sort of the two sigma effect of the effect that a one-on-one -on -one tutor can have on student outcomes, and yet we know that with student to teacher ratios looking the way they are, our ability to deliver that one-to-one -one differentiated instruction can be really limited. Those are where I'd argue we have challenges that disruptive innovations can address. Right, where we can think about, well, what's a more affordable and accessible way to deliver learning 
to reach each and every student. Um, and so historically at the Institute, we've looked a lot at the rise of online and blended learning and the opportunity to do just that. Um, obviously not all online learning environments are high quality or delivering on that promise, but we think that um, with an eye towards really increasing individual student mastery and deploying technology to those pockets of education where access and affordability have proved challenging, we could really revolutionize the way school is organized um, and revolutionize outcomes for more students. Agreed. And I think that was a great, um, very simplified version, very direct. I know I have been really interested in disruptive versus sustainable. Um, and I just really um, am a huge fan of essentially reframing, reimagining um, how we um, do innovation, for, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, so yeah. you, you, and I think what oh. you're saying, like the, the, the temptation to just sustain our existing system, that's very understandable. And any market, education or otherwise, we think needs both innovations that sustain our existing structures, but also innovations that disrupt them, if that makes sense. So um, I think it's it's a balancing act of when are we gonna work to improve what we already have and when are we going to sort of reach beyond that existing system to come up with completely new ways of, of teaching and learning. Yeah, and I, I just I just had Tom Vander Ark on an episode and, and he wrote an article talking about uh, improvement yeah. uh, and innovation and kind of being clear about what game it is that we're playing. Yes. And and I would say that we do, uh, traditionally K-12 does a really good job at attacking the improvement game, um, but rarely do we have uh, an autonomous space for kind of the research and development wing that most modern companies have. Yep, you're speaking my language, Jason. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> All right, so look, you wrote a blog post at the beginning of this year, and it was titled uh, something to the effect of looking back at what you learned in 2018. So people can read the article uh, if they want every piece, but I kind of want to combine a couple of those questions into one, and uh, it's a very loaded question. So uh, what does the future of K-12 and higher education look like? Yeah, thanks for just giving me an easy softball <laughs> question, Jason. Right, right. Uh, so, so referring back to that article, which is in the blog on our website that anyone can read, I just was trying to summarize kind of the, the research that we conducted over the past 12 months. And it falls into sort of three main buckets to answer your question about what the future of, of both school and sort of adult learning look like. Um, my colleague Tom Arnett, who's a senior researcher who thinks a lot about the shifting role of the teacher um, in kind of the future of school, tackled two very related questions, um, which were sort of what does the role of the teacher look like as, as learning environments shift? And do we actually have new staffing structures that are starting to emerge that depart from the one teacher, one classroom? model that many of us grew up in and that many of your colleagues, I suspect, teach in. Yeah. Um, and that was an effort to understand, you know, we've tracked the rise of blended learning for nearly a decade now, uh, which is one such sort of innovation in teaching and learning. It's one way that we're seeing people start to re-choreograph their classrooms. And one of the constraints that we saw was there was almost a fixed mindset. There was, there was a lot of imagination around how could we reconfigure the classroom, but a fixed mindset around staff. 
Um, and so we wanted to sort of push the envelope there and say, look, it's exciting to rethink your instructional model, but why operate within human capital constraints if you could approach things like team teaching, like combining teachers with paraprofessionals, like combining teachers, paraprofessionals, and even outside experts, and really thinking creatively beyond those human capital constraints. So I think that that had been missing from where we were sitting in some of the conversations about instructional innovation that we're still thinking of like the teacher as the sole <laughs> arbiter of credit and the sole sort of choreographer of his or her classroom. Um, at the same time, Tom wanted to understand what compels teachers, what motivates teachers to shift their instructional practice in ways that sort of open up classrooms and create more flexibility and greater levels of differentiation. And in, in that second paper that we mentioned, he really looked at what teachers are demanding um, out of their roles and, and how new innovative models meet those demands. And the big aha that we had there was that so often in the kind of ed reform, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see my hands, <laughs> ed reform conversation, we romanticize early adopters as some sort of a, a, a hero or a personality type. And we really think early adopter is an attribute that emerges from your circumstances. So depending on the circumstances in which you're teaching, you may be very motivated or very disinclined to adopt a new instructional model. We actually need to understand those circumstances rather than assuming it's something innate in, in some teachers' personalities and not others to try new models. Um, so, so that's really like our, our K-12, what's shifting in staffing? questions there or should I keep going? <laughs> no, I think that that's good. We could have uh, an entire episode just in, in that particular <laughs> space. But so I know just, and this will be a segue to get to the higher ed. I know a lot of things, what, what people argue about here is, you know, we're preparing kids for college and then college will say, uh, no, you didn't. So how, what, what does that look like? And, and is that tied to a different future for higher ed? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think we're very interested in, in disruptions afoot in higher ed, in large part because, you know, those examples I mentioned before of Sony's transistor radio or um, Apple's PC, those were targeting what you would think of as non-consumers, people who otherwise couldn't afford a radio um, or a computer. Um, and if you look at our higher education market right now, we have a ton of non-consumers because we've created college around this idea of prestige and we put a price tag on college that makes it out of reach for a fair number of people, particularly working adults. And so we really, um, in some ways, we're seeing change afoot much faster in higher education than in K-12 today. And that's with the rise of everything from kind of boot camp models and new, faster, quicker training models that don't take a full two, four, six years to get to um, some sort of a certificate or even leapfrog a certificate and get you straight into a job, to also understanding, well, what are some of the traditional institutions in higher ed, like Southern New Hampshire University, Western Governors University doing to really recreate their business model from the inside out, to be fundamentally student-centered in a way that our traditional um, post-secondary system just is not, um, and no fault of any one individual. It's just how our policies have really um, created that system over the long run. So one of the things we spent a lot of time on last year, partly because there was a, a brief moment where it looked like the Higher Education Act would get reauthorized, and of course that didn't happen because, as we all know, Congress is entirely dysfunctional right now. But um, 
when you look at the Higher Education Act and when you look at our accreditation um, sort of machinery in higher education, we are constraining business models and business model innovation in huge ways that if we don't fix that policy climate, I think we'll still see exciting players kind of on the margins or outside of the system, like those boot camps, but we're not gonna reach as many people as we need to. Um, so we spent a lot of time saying, how could you modernize the Higher Education Act to account for both technological developments, but the sorts of business mod model innovations that could reach more students? And how could you modernize accreditation, which is right now a very unsexy, but deeply entrenched issue um, around sort of a very input-driven way of thinking about quality rather than rewarding training programs that get people return on their investment and get them into jobs um, that have the potential for upward mobility. So that's really the, and, and we can talk later maybe about the intersection of K-12 and higher ed, but the, the sort of headline there is I think all of those shifts afoot are gonna start to exert downward pressure on our K-12 system. I think our K-12 system likes to think of itself as like moving upwards into higher ed, but we often define, my, my mentor Michael Horn will often remind me, we define a good high school by a high school that sends students to a good college. And so if our definition of a good college or a good post-secondary experience shifts, our definition of a good high school is gonna shift with it. That's a good point. Um, and I know just locally, what's really interesting is that, um, you know, the, the right conversations are being had and, and we'll get to that in a minute, but um, in everyone's strategic plan, you know, higher ed, uh, everyone's trying to reach down into the K-12 space to help influence. Um, and then we're also trying to form partnerships with higher ed on our end as well. Um, and so it's really promising to see that um, both um, sectors are realizing the influence we yeah. can have on each other. Um, but I, I think that we're, we're still trying to figure out um, the role, the clear path to take in that. Yeah, and I think both sectors, you know, come up against a very inconvenient truth, which is that it's really hard to disrupt yourself. Yeah. That's sort of like an axiom that Clay discovered early in his research on disruptive innovation, right? We get entrenched in our business models, which are not just business models in the for-profit sense of the word, but they're our resources, our processes, and our priorities, and those really calcify over time. And so it's hard to change that model from the inside out. And the examples we're excited about in both sectors are the ones that you used this language perfectly before, the ones that are carving out some, some autonomous space, sort of sandboxes of sort, to really reinvent themselves from within, um, rather than a slow march towards change management that really amounts to only tweaking these, these broken systems. Yeah, so I mean, this, this goes off, off topic, but I, I, I kind of want to ask you, so um, I'm reading, Seth Godin's new book, This is Marketing, and one of the things that he talks about in there, and you know, this is kind of common knowledge for lean startup principles as well, is that you know, in business, uh, unless you're Google or, or someone uh, on that scale, you, you're very deliberate about not trying to appeal to everyone. And yet in education, yeah. we consistently have this focus that we need a one-size-fits-all approach. And while equity is uh, and should be a target for public education, is it possible to have disruptive innovation and possibly get to equity within our current models? 
Boom, that's a big one. You went totally off script for me. <laughs> I did, I, mean, I did. So if it's if it's a terrible if it's a terrible answer and you're getting gonna get fired over your answer, we'll cut it off. No, up. I mean I'll go back to my original point, which is why I chose to work at the Christensen Institute, because I think that disruptive innovations, by definition, expand access and affordability. And when you think about those two as underpinning where we have struggled um, from an equity perspective in the past, I think that these two go hand in hand. I think you're asking a different question, which is from a from a almost order of operations and where do we start? <laughs> Where should we start if we want to both be successful and be successful in service of equity? And one of the kind of, this is a little bit of a, a wonky, think tanky answer to your question, but one of the things that I think we get wrong in both K-12 and higher ed is that we try and compete head on with the status quo. Instead mm -hmm. of starting in places where the system has failed to serve or failed to reach certain consumers. So whether that's Southern New Hampshire University saying, we're not gonna design our College for America offering around the traditional 18 to 22 year old, you know, student who can afford college. We're gonna design our offering around working adults, many of whom are parents, and who need the flexibility that we're gonna provide them with. Like it's, it's, a, it's a necessity. It's not just sort of an innovative trapping um, and really nail their, um, their demands, their what we would call job to be done. And I think equally in the K-12 system, right, instead of trying to start with the core and radically upend how we do math and ELA, what if we started more on the margins um, and really nailed, nailed sort of opportunities out there and then eventually migrated those challenges inward. Um, and that's what we've sort of urged people to do for a long time. It's just not the, the traditional mindset around improvement <laughs> in the K-12 system. All right, so I want to talk about your book for a minute. Um, you talk a lot about uh, social capital, so I'm curious, uh, how can social capital unlock student potential, and what can we do to get it for students, and maybe even whose responsibility is it? Yeah, so, um, for your listeners, social capital is a little bit of a, a, a wonky term, but it essentially describes the fact that our networks contain value. And they contain value in a variety of ways that are fairly intuitive for anyone living in any form of community, right? So this is everything from your neighbor who helps out and babysits to um, your old college roommate telling you about a job opportunity to a former mentor like betting on you and deciding to hire you. There's all sorts of ways that our, our networks actually translate into real valuable value in our lives. Um, and what I sort of argue in the book um, is that we have a very, a very um, narrow mindset around achievement and test scores and degrees as proxies for access to opportunity. But what that ignores is what the social capital literature tells us, which is that in America, an estimated 50% of jobs come through personal connections. If you're on LinkedIn and sort of representative of that population, an estimated 80% of jobs come through referrals. Um, and if you look at adult development literature over the much longer term, when you study people over decades in their old age, the greatest predictor of longevity and health is access to warm relationships. So I, I think my worry was that the education establishment has, has sort of narrowed its focus on what students know, their human capital, to the point of 
of forgetting about this other half of opportunity and, and whom they know. Um, and I also say, and Jason, I'd love to hear you riff on this a little bit. When, when I talk to schools about this sometimes, less directly to educators, but sort of school system administrators and leaders, there is a tendency, which I heard in your question, to sort of be like, mm, is this school's job? Because we're already super busy and now you're asking us to do something else. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now you're asking us to build students' networks. And, and what we propose in the book is actually integrating a relationship strategy alongside your academic strategy is actually very complementary. Um, because for so long we've talked about human capital constraints, but we've designed schools to be very insular instead of connecting schools to all the social assets around them, whether those are experts or volunteers or mentors. Um, we've also had these long debates for decades with No Child Left Behind around how to close achievement gaps, and yet we've done a really poor job of integrating the sorts of social supports and poverty relief that could help those gaps budge for low-income students. And so rather than seeing it as an extra job, which maybe you do, um, I, we hope to push readers to think of this as a complement to where some of our um, traditional approaches have fallen short and really held us back. Yeah, I mean, my, my take um, you know, is, is really illustrated in a story that we had this year. Um, we had the students put together a pitch for a business concept that they had. Um, did some research around, uh, you know, logo design and color theory, you know, got some marketing 101 stuff, of course, some kind of public speaking tips. And um, they pitched their idea to uh, the Martin Agency and some local entrepreneurs, Martin Agency, the, they're responsible for the Geico ads. Um, they're, cool. they're out of Richmond, but long story short is that we reached out to the community to create this network for kids, and not only did they pitch their business ideas to them, but uh, after that, they immediately got to go around and kind of get uh, individual feedback from uh, people in the creative side of the agency, from the product development side to, uh, you know, a financial advisor, um, you know, just different, uh, an ed tech um, entrepreneur. So, you know, different people in this area. And I'll just say the feedback didn't even matter. But what came out of it all was that those kids connected with people that are in the fields in our area and the feedback that they did get propelled them to say to me, hey, now I get what you were talking about in the classroom. Let me keep going with this. So um, it's very powerful what we can do when we just take that simple act of connecting with people outside the classroom. Totally. And can I say how I would construe that in like social capital language? Yeah. Like, I think two things. There were many things happening probably in that room, right, and, and afterwards. But there's two ways to think about what resulted. And one is really a proxy for engagement, right? You saw your students see relevance and then therefore engage more proactively as a result of that interaction. And that actually bears out in research. One of the most alarming studies we read when we were, when we were writing the book, I say we because I wrote it with my husband, which is a topic for a different podcast, but... <laughs> was um, a Brookings study on the phenomenon of economic despair, which is that in areas of high inequality, and I don't know what the demographics of your area are, but in areas of high inequality in the United States, 
you're seeing young people, uh, low-income young people, particularly boys, stop investing in their education because they don't actually see it bearing fruit in the adults around them to finish high school. And that bucks like all of traditional economics, right? That you should be incentivized to invest in your human capital um, because it should be rewarded, but they're not actually seeing how those rewards would actually sort of play out. And so I think that's an extreme example, but an area where exposure to people who, with whom you can identify who are succeeding is incredibly critical to keeping young people engaged on the path to success. The place I push, and this is sort of my new little soapbox, so forgive me, but I say it to everyone, is that we also, I think as a system, need to start thinking of those connections as outcomes unto themselves, Um, right? So thinking of relationships, not just as inputs to engagement, but relationships as outcomes as a network that can over time accrue value. So like, could those students reach back out to some of those adults months later when they're working on a different project? Could they continue to nurture that network? And I know pragmatically there's some questions there, although it's where technology has a real advantage, um, a real real way to sort of make that easier. But we have to, my argument is that we have to stop always thinking about relationships as inputs. Um, With teachers and students, with students and experts, with students and one another, um, because that will then lead us to invest much more deliberately in, in their social capital. No, that's a good point. Um, so you and uh, you mentioned Tom Arnett earlier. Uh, you guys wrote a report back in 2017, uh, and you titled it The State Innovators Toolkit, A Guide to Successfully Managing Innovation Under ESSA. So look, this, this is a big one too, because too many times I hear uh, in my space, basically one of two things. We can't do this because, or we can only do this. So I guess two questions. How much protection does ESSA give a district wanting to innovate? And has anything changed in the uh, you know, couple years since you published that report? Yeah, it's a great question. And what, like, the the annoying um, answer I will give as I, like, perch outside of D.C. here in my house is that it, it really depends state by state, right? So ESSA by design really empowered states to sort of go back to the drawing board and define success. So uh, as I understand it, Virginia has actually put a lot of bold stuff on the table. So um, I think you're you're on the right side of that um, exercise, whereas I think some states have really backed off holding themselves accountable to doing things well, much less in an innovative manner. But I can't sort of answer specifically state by state. What I will say is there's a little bit of a, I find myself caught in a weird place in this conversation, and I'm curious what's happening in Virginia on this front. There was a little bit of like a, a, a pulling back the curtain on, okay, we actually need to embrace other measures. And if you think about all the ways that we've talked about innovation on this podcast, like innovation in service of what is a really important question. Because if we just keep getting better at average proficiency, I don't think we're going to create better lives for students, much less a better economy for our country. And so when you think about what ESSA did, it opened up a conversation about alternative measures, but then there was a little bit of like, wait, does the emperor have no clothes? Cause we don't have those alternative measures yet. Mm, yeah. Right. Like 
so we're going to choose attendance. Now, I'm not saying Virginia did that, but some states did, right? Like, yeah. like this moment of innovative promise turned into a default to some very um, blunt <laughs> metrics that I'm not particularly encouraged will will sort of revolutionize the system. What I do hope is happening, and if you look at sort of the, there's a recent, so the innovative assessment pilot that's a foot in Louisiana and New Hampshire, and now there's sort of another RFP around that from the federal government. When you look at the sorts of R&D this may be creating an assessment, I'm more excited. But I'm a little bit more wait and see on sort of like any state that's really hit it out of the park in, in this sort of couple year window since the, since the law passed. But curious to hear, what are you seeing in, in Virginia on that point? So I, <laughs> I will give I will give you a very DC comment as well, and that is that there are some promising things in the works that we are trying to do here in my district uh, and across the Commonwealth. Um, but then there are also things that uh, appear to contradict that, whether they're uh, laws being proposed or uh, just different kind of mandates coming down from different areas. And really, I'll just say that, uh, you know, there there's a lot of confusion around um, intentions from both, you know, the local level and then the state level. You know, I I truly and, you know, this isn't this isn't propaganda or just, you know, uh, highlighting what we're doing here. But I truly feel like we're in a place where we we've decided that, uh, yes, we have. Uh, to use the example earlier, we're, we're going to play the improvement game, um, but we're also going to be deliberate about the innovation game as well. So we have a new superintendent uh, that came yeah. in this year. Uh, and pre- I should say first, we uh, last year we developed uh, our own learner profile. So we have kind of a North Star to guide us. Uh, and then the superintendent came in this year and just put out uh, what she's calling her passport, uh, where she's highlighted what she's taken away from her time here and where we want to move forward and she's used language like uh, redesign high schools for the future uh, totally totally revamp CTE um, you know all of these conversations that lend themselves to uh, innovation Um, and really I think we're I think we're in a good place right here Uh, but then again you know you hear stories of people that uh, are doing things in other places, and it just seems like more of what we've always done, despite legislation and messages that are being sent from above. Yeah. Well, and one of the, we're not, I mean, we're not going to get into a deep conversation in our last few minutes here about funding, but one of the points Tom and I were trying to make in that paper, and that I'm trying to get smarter on with the reauthorization of the Perkins Act as well, as you mentioned, CTE, is that. Um, Currently, we still predominantly fund enrollment, right? And, and sort of per pupil daily attendance is still our, our funding mindset. And as a result, a lot of the changes that, that we may want to see from an instructional or a design standpoint, they may not be good or bad or whatever, but they're not necessarily inspired by our funding formula. If that makes sense. And I don't think ESSA radically shifted that. I think what we try and highlight in that paper are some of the block grant programs that you could use dollars in creative ways that don't get you stuck in that enrollment um, daily attendance mentality. (laughs) 
that, that really undergirds our factory-based model of education in K-12. Um, and ditto, I think, with Perkins, right? I think the, the more dollars on the table could lead to more traditional approaches to CTE, yeah. or there may be people like your district that pick up the mantle and say, we're gonna actually use these dollars differently within within the bounds of the law. And, and that requires being proactive. The dollars are not gonna make you do that if that makes any sense right no exactly and, and that's a great segue into last question here so what conversations do we need to be having uh whoever's listening to this in in your own neck of the woods uh to really move the needle in the right direction in education yeah again you love your softballs um, <laughs> <laughs> so i i think we've already touched on these but i'll synthesize i think one it particularly speaking to a K-12 audience, the downward pressure from a completely new higher education system is going to come, right? And it's gonna come, I think, faster than some people think. And a real understanding of the shifts happening in higher education and what it means to prepare students, not just for a variety of pathways, but for how to navigate those new pathways feels critical. Um, so I'm really interested in guidance, not in the traditional sense of the word, but in guidance being sort of interwoven throughout how we rear our young and teach teach young people to navigate a complex world. Um, the second is is really sort of, we need to start paying attention to the social side of opportunity. So not to shamelessly plug my book, you don't even have to read it, but just acknowledging in your context why and how relationships matter and that we need to start taking the chance out of chance encounters for young people. It can't be luck that you happen to find a mentor or a web of support or a job we need to start actually designing our institutions around that reality. And then the last that I'm really excited about um, and that you mentioned earlier is, is around CTE. And, and like maybe we need a new word for it because that sort of conjures images of like 1990s shop, which I still think <laughs> has its place, but like really understanding um, some of the models that are starting to emerge that expose young people to a wide variety of industries and, and optimize not just for pathways into a particular job, but for optionality um, and, and how that can involve both networking them with industry experts, like the example you mentioned, um, using some of the online learning that's emerging out of the higher ed space to deliver some of the academics within CTE so that you can do local work-based learning in a more flexible way. And then last, and then I probably, obviously I could talk forever about this, but I'm also super interested in kind of shrinking the dosage of work-based learning experiences um, and internships down to shorter engagements where you explicitly get exposure and a relationship and some practice, but we're not shoving you into a three, four, six month internship where you may or may not sort of find your purpose. Um, so those are a couple, couple little nuggets of inspiration, hopefully. <laughs> I love it. Julia, uh, I know where I found you and your work. Uh, for those listening that want to learn more, where can they find you? Hi, yeah. Um, so I am at christiansoninstitute.org. That's where all of our blogs and research go up. And then on Twitter, at Julia F. Freeland. Just throw an extra F in there to confuse people. Um, and yeah, always love to chat with people about all these topics and more. So feel free to reach out. All right, Julia, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate it.